0: Open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, our focus this morning will be on verses 18b, the latter half of verse 18, through verse 26. We'll be reading verses 12 through 26, Philippians 1. Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live, For your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to
1: God. Let's pray. Holy Father, grant us
0: the same kind of resolved rejoicing that we see Paul demonstrate here. That I believe stems from this this really deep and profound knowledge of truth. This pragmatic, practical theology, rather, that to live is Christ and to die is gain.
1: Father, bless
0: your word to create that same reality in our hearts today. In Christ's name, I plead this. Amen. What is life? What is death? These are two questions fundamental to our human existence. They're they're questions that we are confronted with. And we may try to bury those questions whenever they come to our minds. Or we may attempt to answer them, but we will be confronted with these two questions. What is life? What is death? And how you answer the first question determines how you'll answer the second. How you conceive of life informs then what you think death to consist in. But ultimately, everyone, everyone will experientially give one of two correct answers to the second question. What is death? Everyone will eventually get that question right. There are two answers, and you will give one or the other. And which one you will give, and you only want to give one, but which one you will give will be determined by how you answer the first question right now. What is life? Which has only one correct answer. Answer what is life correctly, and you will answer what is death in triumph. Answer what is life incorrectly, and you answer. You will answer what is death in defeat. Here, Paul answers both of these questions the way you would want them to be answered. Paul answers them both, but he doesn't answer them philosophically. He doesn't even answer them pastorally. It's not as if the Philippians have asked this question or are struggling with it and and Paul pastorally wants to counsel them. This is what life is and this is what death is. Paul answers these questions indirectly and he's speaking personally. Not philosophically, not pastorally. Paul is speaking personally for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. He answers these questions personally, which is exactly how you want to be able to answer them. You don't want Paul to speak philosophically in some kind of detached manner about these things. You don't even want to hear it as good advice. You want to know, how must I answer these questions personally? But before we get to those questions, we need to consider the context in which Paul's answer to those questions is embedded, because Paul is not taking these... The questions never arise in our context. He speaks as to what life is for him, and what death is, but... That's not what the matter that Paul has taken up. Paul is imprisoned, in my opinion, convincingly, he's, a, he's imprisoned in Rome. And the Philippians have sent, have sent him a gift. Paul responds with this letter, letter, and so naturally, with this letter, he is expectedly answering something they would want to know. How are you, Paul? You think he's going to, to tell them in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me. But instead of directly telling you about the state of Paul, he tells you about the state of the gospel. The gospel is advancing. And yet, because he's, he's shared this, he has told them how it is with his own soul. Because the gospel advance, Paul rejoices. And why Paul does so, what's, what's driving this kind of behavior too often we come to the scriptures and we see something like this, and we just look at the admiral behavior and we think, I want to live like that. And the reason we don't is because we don't see what's underlying this kind of behavior and driving it. What's driving this kind of joyful, courageous zeal for the gospel? despite his circumstances and everything else, that will become even more clear today. The rejoicing that happens in verse 18 goes both directions. It connects verses 12 through 18 b a with verses 18b through 26. So the first Rejoice goes backwards. The second rejoice goes forwards. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. That all goes backwards. And then the last part, yes, and I will rejoice for. So the second rejoice goes forward. And then you start to observe this in verses 12-12. Through 17, Paul is speaking about the present. In verses 19 through 26, Paul is speaking about the future. So one, rejoice, is concerning the present. And the second, rejoice, concerns the future. And But verse 18, I want you to see the way it's constructed. Let you know there is something that connects both of these. The gospel's being preached, and in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. You sense these two joys are, there's something distinct. One is in reference to the present, one is in reference to the future, but something brings them together. We'll see what that is. Verse 12, Paul says he wants them to know something. And then in verse 19, Paul tells them something that he knows. So one one rejoicing looks back to something Paul wants them to know, and the second one to something Paul knows. Or we could say what's happening now with verse 19 is that Paul wants them to know that he knows something now. What does Paul know? What what is underneath Paul's resolved rejoicing? You see, it's a, it's a resolve. It's, there's, there's his will is being exercised. Yes, and I will rejoice. What's underneath is resolved rejoicing. The first thing you notice, I will rejoice for because I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So one reason he's rejoicing is because... He's, he has a confidence concerning his deliverance. What is this deliverance? There's a lot of debate, theologically, as to what this deliverance is. Is it immediate deliverance or ultimate deliverance? Is it his release from prison or his release from the world, death? Which one? The word that you have is deliverance here is most often translated salvation throughout the New Testament. 37 of 45 times salvation. And it's argued by some that every time Paul uses this word, it refers to salvation in Christ. But... To say, every time Paul uses it this way, therefore, whenever he uses it here, it must be used in that way, means that if there were an exception, you are never open to there being an exception to the rule. I think this is the exception to the rule of Paul's usage of this term throughout the New Testament. One reason I think Paul is speaking about release from prison is because of the means through which he expects this deliverance come to come. Through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, it is true that perseverance in the faith is the road whereby God brings us along to ultimate salvation. That's true. And it's true that the prayers of the saints and the help of the Spirit are what bring us along that road to ultimate deliverance. I just find it really clunky that if Paul is saying, I expect to reach heaven's gates because of your prayers and the help of the Spirit, it just seems really odd for Paul to speak in that kind of way. There's truth there, but if that's what Paul is intending, I think he would be much more careful and elaborate on it more. Now that's pretty thin, That's just my first impression as I read it as to why I don't think it speaks of ultimate salvation. The greater reason is how this I know statement, verse 19, I know this will turn out for my deliverance, relates to the second I know statement, verse 25. I know that I will remain and continue with you all. So I take the deliverance Paul is speaking of to be synonymous with remaining and continuing with you all. And I think whenever Paul says, I know then, you should begin to see that he's saying, I know, not in an absolute certainty. It's been revealed to me by God. I've received revelation. I know this, but a kind of confidence. And what will happen is we'll go... Uh, we'll see an argument in between verse 19 and verse 25, the second, in between the first I know and the second I know, that moves you along to how it is Paul rev- uh, comes to this point of confidence and assurance. And so whenever he... The, the, the other reason, then thinking on this, whenever Paul says that the means of their prayers and the Spirit's help will work out to his deliverance, I think it's quite natural to understand then, how are the Philippians praying for Paul? It's right to pray for the endurance of your brother and sister in Christ. It's right. Pray that for them. But I think what they're really praying for Paul, and what Paul understands that they're praying for him, is, deliver our brother. For the good of your church, deliver Paul. Release him from this. And whenever they're asking for the Spirit's help, they're asking, give him wisdom and grace as he comes before Caesar in this trial to speak. Perhaps they're recalling Jesus' promise, which we have in Matthew chapter 10, 19 through 20. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So here Paul is expressing this confidence, not an absolute and certain knowledge, but this confidence. And then we have verses 20 through 24. Which brings us forward to the second I know statement. But in between the two, Paul, as he's establishing his confidence, actually makes you wonder how confident he is initially. And yet he begins, the reason I say that is he begins with a statement of of even, I think, greater confidence. I think he does have something in mind that is a certainty that underlies his strong confidence that will be released. I expect to be released from these chains and underlying that, the reason I believe that, is I'm confident of something else. I have a hope and an eager expectation. Or as the New American Standard in King James, an earnest expectation. And this expectation Paul has that underlies his confidence is presented both negatively and positively. Negative, I will not be at all ashamed. Positive, but with full courage. Now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Negative, I will not be ashamed. Positive, Christ will be honored. the contrast is not between Paul being ashamed and Paul being honored, but Paul being ashamed and Christ being honored. Christ will be honored as he goes forward in this with full courage regardless of how it plays out. If Rome finds Paul guilty. It will be the intent of Rome. And whatever she does. To shame Paul. But that is irrelevant. If Paul goes forward. With courage. In this endeavor. Because it's. The contrast is not between. Paul being shamed. And Paul being honored by Rome. It's between. Paul being shamed by disowning the Lord Jesus Christ and being courageous in honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. Regardless of what Rome does, the reason Paul is rejoicing throughout all of this is that Christ will be honored. Be it life or be it death, This is resolved. Paul's trial will not result in shame, but honor. This is certain for Paul. Christ will be honored. Therefore, he rejoices. Consider these three things before we move on. First, Paul's confidence is not fundamentally rooted then, you see, In his expectation of deliverance. Paul isn't saying, I'm so happy because I'm expecting to get out soon. Paul's joy fundamentally rests on this. His assurance that Christ will be honored however it plays out. I've got a confidence I'm going to be released. But, underlying that, is a more solid confidence that regardless of it, how anything plays out, Christ will be honored. So, do you see the, how the two rejoicings in verse 18 are connected now? The first rejoicing concerns the present. Christ is proclaimed and Paul rejoices. The second rejoicing concerns the future. Christ will be honored Paul rejoices. So in the first, regardless of the motives of those who are proclaiming Christ, Paul rejoices. In the second, regardless of what happens to Paul, Christ will be honored, so Paul rejoices. Saints, is your joy so rooted? Paul commands the Philippians. The Spirit commands us in 3 and 1. Rejoice. In the Lord. Chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always and again I will say rejoice. There are three double joys in the book of Philippians. And notice the harmony in them. One we We've covered it. What then? Only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. And now seeing how that goes on to play out. 2, 17 through 18. Even if, if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Regardless of what happens to me, I am glad and rejoice, and you should too. You see the harmony. Then the third one, Philippians four four through seven: Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will, and again I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Regardless of what's happening, rejoice in the Lord. And there's reason then to rejoice. Sometimes it's said that uh, worldly happiness is based on circumstances, and Whereas joy is not. And there's something to that. But it's just, it really is a matter of circumstance. If your if worldly kind of joy is based on immediate circumstance. The Christian's joy, it's based on something temporal and immediate. Immediate's not the best way to put it. The Christian's joy is based on something eternal. Here's the better way. Worldly joy, mutable. Christian's joy, immutable. Temporal, eternal. Our joy has a circumstance. The circumstance is Christ and our being in Christ. But our circumstance, that one, is eternal, abiding, unchanging. And so it matters not how other circumstances may change because that one doesn't. If you prosper, Christ is Lord and Christ will be exalted. And if you suffer, Christ is Lord and Christ will be exalted. And so resolve then to rejoice. This is the only way you can do this kind of resolve. Yes, and I will rejoice because be it life or be it death, your ambition is that Christ will be honored, and you can know that Christ will see to it that His name is honored. Second, you, you can. I just want you to see, I don't agree with this, but I want you to be able to see why many come to this text and begin to think that whenever Paul says, I know this will work out for my deliverance, why now, some of them think that that could refer to ultimate deliverance, because here Paul is now and saying, underneath this confidence, I know that whether I live or whether I die, Christ will be honored. I want you to have some sympathy towards that view as I begin to work against it. The third, I think it's critical that you see that this is not an expression of self-confidence, but faith in Christ. Sometimes pride can look like humility, and sometimes humility can look like pride. Paul might have said, pray for me, because I might falter. And it's absolutely okay for you to do that, but what I want you to recognize is that you can say the same words, and for one person, those words might be an expression of faith, and for another person, those words might be an expression of doubt. I think it's going to be made plain that Paul's confidence here speaks not of pride in himself, but faith in Christ. Humility does not mean doubting Christ. So Paul could have said, you know, I might falter, and that might not have been any reflection of Paul's healthy viewing of himself as a sinner who can fault. It's the Paul who wrote, let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. But it could, rather than expressing that, it could have been simply an expression of doubt in Christ, which then would be sinful. Humility does not mean doubting Christ. Humility means owning the truth of who you are. But growth in humility does not mean... Thinking about yourself, thinking less of yourself. It means thinking of yourself less. The truly humble person, Lewis said this at one place, would really amaze us. We wouldn't even think of him as humble. He would just be a happy chap who who didn't seem concerned of himself at all, really interested in us. Paul's confidence, it'll be plain, does not stem from thinking much of himself, but thinking much of Christ. He's just not thinking of himself at all. That's why I believe he comes to such a place of confidence. When Paul considers himself, this is what it stems from. When Paul considers himself, this is what he thinks. Christ! And that's why he's confident. Why does Paul know what he knows? Why does he not have Only this expectation of Christ being glorified, whether He lives or whether He dies, but a a lesser kind of confidence that He'll be released from prison. What's the grounds, what's the reasoning that underlies Paul's knowing? And the answer begins to unfold with verse 21. For, so Christ will be honored whether by life or death. For, because, for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Verse 21 is one of the most profound and glorious verses I believe in all of Scripture. So brief. And yet so
1: potent. It's twelve
0: words in the ESV. It's only Nine. In the original language more strictly translated it sounds something like this for to me to live Christ to
1: die gain
0: what does it mean to live Christ first it's not prized what paul is primarily wanting to say here it is assumed in what Paul is primarily wanting to say here, that for Christ, for me, for me to live Christ. What that means is that Christ is his life. He's the source of his life. It's a reality he speaks of in Galatians two twenty. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. What Paul primarily intends to communicate here though, assuming that, understanding that the source of my life is Christ, I live in Christ, assuming that what Paul is speaking of here, for me to live, Christ, is that life means service to Christ. You see that whenever Paul begins to unpack it here. For me to live, Christ, to die, gain. He begins to tease these out. If I am to live in the flesh, that means... What does it mean to live? Christ. Now, for me to live in the flesh, what does that mean? It means fruitful labor for me. What's the fruitful labor? I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Life in Christ means living To glorify and serve Christ by loving His people, serving them. What is life? That's life. There are a lot of answers we could give, but that's life. Listen to how Paul works it out in 2 Corinthians 5. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and He died for all, That those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now consider that in contrast to the answer that this world gives to what is life. And how it is so self-oriented. And the answer we're getting from Paul here is first What is life? It's Christ. And if you know Christ. If you know that life. It means a life not concerned with yourself. But concerned first with Christ. And because it's concerned with Christ. For the people of God. Paul is in union with Christ then. To live for those. Live for the life of those. Who are in union with Christ. It's living for those who are living. For their life. It's living that they might live. He's living for others. And we'll see this in Philippians. It's made plain that they might live for others. Not concerned with themselves. Chapter 2. Life means Christ. Life means labor. The kind of labor that can only be done in Christ and for Christ. In serving His people. Life involves more than that. But this side of glory... Before the eternal Sabbath, life does not mean less than labor. Then, and only after then, only after you've grasped that to live is Christ, only then can you say, to die is gain. Without Christ, one does not know life. And death comes not as gain, but as loss upon top of loss. Eternal loss. Unending loss. It is a death unto eternal death. Not a death, the end, but a death that keeps enduring. It's a death with finality, with no hope of ever knowing life in any capacity or way ever again. In this life, the dead enjoy something of life. But after death, the dead will enjoy nothing but death, eternally. But if Christ is your life, death, though it remains an enemy, is a defeated enemy, submissive under the feet of Christ, that He makes to serve His end for His people, for His glory and their good. So how is dying then gain? And there are a number of answers we could give here. Death is gain and rest from labor.
1: I believe that we will, will labor in the new heaven
0: and the new earth. We'll work. There will be work, but the element of toil, the element of frustration, of thorns, and the sweat from the brow, and it all being futility. <laughs> you'll work, and it'll
1: work. You'll plant the seed. And there won't be
0: fear or worry. It'll be fruitful. Death will be gain and freedom from suffering. It will be gain and freedom from sin. Freedom from the curse. Freedom and deliverance from this world and wickedness. But what Paul specifically has in mind here. Again he teases this out. What does it mean that death is gain? Look verse 23. My desire is to depart. And be with Christ. Life. What does life mean specifically for Paul? To live Christ. What does that mean? It means labor. To die, gain. What does that mean? Principally mean for Paul in this context? It means being with Christ. That's the supreme answer. Why is dying gain? Every other answer is so, so much smaller than this one. Pales in comparison to the glory of this one. Why is death gain? Christ. His answer is the same, you see. To live, Christ. To
1: die, Christ.
0: Life, for Paul, we could put it this way, means union with Christ. A union in such a way that Christ then lives in us. The Christ, chapter 2 speaks of, giving Himself for us. And us to have that same kind of mind in us and serving one another. It means Christ, as we're in union with Him, living through us. That's life. Life means union with Christ. Death means communion with Christ. Now it's true, we have both union and communion with Christ now. But there's a sense in which we could say, one of them kind of comes to the fore on each side. What does life mean? Union with Christ. Living in union with Him. The Spirit working in me. Spirit of Christ loving and serving others. What does death mean? The gain of unhindered Perfect, full communion with Christ. And this creates a dilemma for Paul. Verse 22. Which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Verse 23. I am hard pressed between the two. Now Paul goes on just a few sentences. It isn't as if he's, he just wrestles it all out as he writes along. He's already come to the answer. He began with it. I know. He's going to unpack that I know in a bit. He already knows the answer. He's already made the choice. What he's wanting to convey to you is something of the tension that he feels in his soul whenever he thinks about these two of of these. If you cannot sense anything of this tension, I want you to really wrestle If you're answering the first question just with the Sunday school correct answer and it hasn't gripped your heart. To live Christ. Because if you get that, if you live in Christ, if you labor for Christ, that labor will be hard. That labor will be oppressed. You'll long for rest. But it's not just simply that you want deliverance in that kind of way so that death is gain is appealing to you. But as you labor and live for Christ, Christ, this means you're more... Centered on Christ. You love Christ more. You're drawing all your life for Him. If you know union with Christ, you will want more
1: and more communion with Christ.
0: Perhaps then, if you cannot fathom what it means, death, gain. If you can't understand that, you have to ask yourself if you really understand the first question. Perhaps you're only fooling yourself that for you to
1: live is Christ. However great this desire there is, in Paul,
0: this this tension. These two things are not complete opposites. To live, Christ to die. We already said Christ. There's no tension between Christ in life and Christ in death. There's a tension. Think of the tension Paul is feeling is one between duty and delight. Not between holy duty and sinful delight. That would make the choice easy. Christ but between holy duty and holy delight. And what decides and truly demonstrates, it demonstrates the first principle. For me to live, Christ. And that life means Christ in me, serving others for His glory. What demonstrates Paul really gets that, is that here the the tension, the choices between His delight And their need. And he chooses their need. Paul makes his choice. Not simply what's best for himself. But what is best for others. And thus, he magnifies Christ. And in this way, his duty is not contrary to delight. It's just another avenue towards it. It's the only one on which you begin to express death gain. Paul is modeling, as I've spoken, getting ahead of myself, what he speaks of in 2, 1 through 8. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look, each of you, not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then it goes on to speak of Christ's exaltation. To live, Christ. To die, gain. You see why Paul now, in contemplating his trial, and being certain that whatever happens, life or death, Christ will be exalted, and then examining the tension in his own soul between these two, as if he had a choice, but if I did have a choice, which one would I choose? As he's examining that, and he says, it's nece- as much as I want this, it's necessary for me to remain with them. You see why he comes to his confidence now? See how he worked there from this first I know? How do you get from there to the second one? It makes it plain. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Here's this apostle understanding his apostolic ministry and this church's need. And he's, he's thinking, how's this going to, be play, how's this going to be play out? I'm confident that either way, Christ is honored. I'm good with that. But I have a strong confidence that it's going to work out, that I'm going to continue. Not because I've been sitting here thinking and having kind of experiential subjective feelings that God really loves me and I'm going to get out of prison because He really loves me and God has prosperous plans for me in my future. Nothing of that. Paul is assessing the situation. And the reason he comes to his confidence, he says, they, not because me, but because of calling, gifting, understanding all of this, I see how it's necessary for me to continue for their joy and progress in the faith.
1: Notice that he says
0: he, he labors. This labor is for their progress and joy in the faith. Not for their faith. Not for them personally to be persons of great faith. It involves that, but this is so much a healthier way to go about it. Oh, pray like like that one we see in the Scripture, Lord, I believe, help mine unbelief. Pray that way. Pray for your faith to grow, but realize this, the way for your faith to grow is not simply to say, I want to have great faith, mighty faith, to, to just pursue growth in faith. Seek instead to grow in the faith. And if you do that, you'll find your faith grow. Look outside yourself. Look to Christ. What has Paul been looking, out through, looking at throughout all of this? The faith. The gospel. Christ. And that's where all this joy, which is faith blooming as it were.
1: that's where it's all stemming from. Look
0: to doctrine. Look to truth. Then joy will increase. Faith will increase. Then. You'll come to a kind of place. In the wake of that. Beginning to look outside of, your, out of, outside of yourself. Looking to Christ. Being conformed to Christ. Living for others. Then you'll come to a place where you can say. For me to live Christ. To die Christ gain this is what paul is after in verse 26 he does this for the purpose so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in christ jesus because of my coming to you again it's christ that's gloried in not paul but paul wants to stick around that he might be the occasion for which they glory in christ confidence, the contentment, the joy, the sacrificial giving of oneself, the peace, everything that you see Paul modeling in this passage that's so attractive and beautiful. All of it stems, you see it, from this statement that he's made. To live Christ
1: To die, gain.
0: Sinner, know that death is gain only if you know Christ. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will know Him who is life. And saints, knowing, knowing this, may we Grow in this as we look at the faith, the gospel, the truth of Christ. So that we may say with Paul as he does in 3, 8 through 11. I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ. Christ to die, gain. Lord Jesus, we plead in your name. Father, we come before you in the Father's name, pleading that we know this to the depths of our souls so that it would resolve, it would, it would work towards rejoicing, joyful, sacrificial service. Labor. And a freedom from fear of death. Which then frees us up all the more to live.
1: Courageously, boldly, no matter what the cost.
0: Root us in Christ. May we draw our life from Christ. And drawing that life, may we live out Christ. may we do so, that not only may we glorify Christ, but in in serving others for their progress and joy in the faith, that they would in us have cause to glory in Jesus Christ as well. In His name we ask this. Amen.